Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. I know you've been interviewed by hundreds of people um, over the years, so it will not stay in your memory, but I, I will remind you that when I first had a chance to talk to you on Coast to Coast, I purchased a copy of Invasion of the Bee Girls. <laughs> You're oh, very did you? <laughs> Yes, and I watched it before I talked to you that night. That's more than I've ever done. <laughs> It's it's not terrible. It, well, it's terrible, but it's fun in a terrible sort of way. And it uh, it here for for people that don't know Invasion of the Bee Girls. I'll read what it says on the IMDb. A powerful cosmic force is turning Earth women into queen bees who kill men by wearing them out sexually. <laughs> My fantasy. <laughs> uh, how did tell me again how it was that you ended up being able to write that script? All right, all right. Um, I had just come out to Hollywood from New York in 1971, and I had an agent, and he sent me out to meet these two producers at Warner Brothers. The first time I was ever on a studio lot, I was thrilled. Um, And they said, we want to make a horror film where just for once, the men and not the women are victims. And I thought, hey, that sounds really cool. And I remembered a letter to the New York Times that had been written by a woman who had just seen Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy. And she said, just once, I'd like to see the man's eyes widen with terror. And I thought, okay, this is for you. Right. And I wrote this movie that I was actually rather proud of, which I called The Honey Factor. And um, what I liked about it, starting with its title was that it was a movie that could play, you know, at Cinema One on 3rd Avenue in the mid-60s of New York, or it could play at a drive-in anywhere else right, and have right. something to offer for each. And the producers said they were very pleased. And, and then I made my big mistake, and, and never go visit your parents during pre-production. Uh-oh. I, I went home for Christmas or something. <laughs> and when I came back, one of the producers said to me, well, you know, a screenplay... It's really like it's like a blueprint for a house. <laughs> and I said, yeah, uh-huh. And he said, and sometimes when you're building the house, you find that, you know, you need a window or a wall outlet that you missed. And so you weren't here, so we had to make some adjustments. And I said, oh, can I see the script? He said, absolutely. <laughs> so they showed me the script that had my name on it and it had somebody else's name on it. Mm. And I said, what is this? And I later found out it was, I think, the producer's girlfriend or something. Um, <laughs> and so I read the script, and I found out uh, a lesson in uh, reality, yeah. that instead of wanting to play Cinema One and the Paramus Drive-In, we were just going for the drive-in. Yeah. So it was still, you know, the bare bones of my story, but all the smart parts had been removed. Um and it had been made into this invasion of the bee girls instead of the more elegant, the honey factor. And it, everything proceeded from there. So I called up my agent and I said, listen, you've got to take my name off this script. And he said, no, 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 no. We have to get her name off the script. And I said, <laughs> yes. no, 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 you don't understand. This is terrible. And he said, you don't understand. You need the credit. Now, it may interest you to know that Studios and writers and producers do not determine who gets credit on a screenplay. Only the Writers Guild 
gets yeah. that right. And it's been negotiated in their contract ever since probably 1956 and around the world in 80 days when Mike Todd tried to give sole credit to S.J. Perlman on the screenplay because he thought that was chic and James Poe and John Farrow weren't going to get anything. Um, and the Writers Guild won this right. And I won my credit arbitration, so my name is forever attached to this masterpiece. Well, at the same time, and that I, you know, that gives you agency to keep doing work, and that leads to the seven percent solution screenplay and other things you were doing for television. But that you aren't credited as a screenwriter on Star Trek II: Wrath of Khan, but you had an impact on that screenplay, didn't you? Yeah, I mainly wrote it. I mean, what yeah. happened with Star Trek II, and I suppose this is passed into sort of urban lore at this point, was uh, I met with Harv Bennett, who was the producer assigned to the movie, and he showed me Star Trek, which I'd never seen, and showed me the movie and said to me, uh, and, I, I, and I sort of got jazzed by this whole idea because looking at it, I, I realized it reminded me of something that I really loved. Even if I didn't understand Star Trek, I sure understood Captain Horatio Hornblower, that English sea captain during the Napoleonic Wars who has all these adventures. And I thought, oh, this is Hornblower in outer space. I, I could do that. Um, so I arranged to be the director of this script that was supposed to come in, um, Draft 5, as I was told. And I, you know, woke up about three weeks later, and I thought, well, what happened to that script? And I called up Harv, and he said, um, I can't show it to you. It was more colorful than that, but that's right. what he said. And uh, I said, well, he said, it's not good. And I said, well, what about draft four or draft three? And he said, look, kid, he always called me kid uh, until he remembered my name, um, <laughs> He said, these are just five discrete attempts to get a second Star Trek movie, because the first one, whatever one thought of it, went into profit. And so, you know, visualize a T-shirt. Paramount's going to do it till they, you know, get it right or something. Sure. Um, and so I said, well, can you send all these scripts up to me? In those days, you didn't hit send. You sent a van. Right. And I, I am a slow reader. And I plodded conscientiously through these five scripts, and then I asked Harv and his producing partner, Robert Salen, to come up to my place. Um, and I had a legal pad on my lap, and I said, um, listen, I have an idea. What would happen if we made a laundry list of anything we liked in these five scripts? Major plot, subplot, minor plot, sequence, scene, character, line of dialogue. I don't care what it is. And then I'll try to cobble together a new script um, assembled from all of these. I'll write the dialogue because none of this I like at all. Um, and then we would have a movie. And they, they didn't seem very happy with my idea. And I said, what's wrong with that? And they said, well, here's the problem. Uh, ILM, the special effects house of George Lucas, which has been contracted to do the special effects shots for the movie, says that if they don't have a draft of a screenplay in 12 days, 
they can't deliver the shots in time for the June opening. And I said, what what June opening? Right. And they they said uh, the picture is slated to open in you know two hundred th- whatever it was in June. Right. I said you you you. This was only the second movie I'd ever directed. I said you 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 book the m- movie into theaters and there's no movie. Um, and he <laughs> said, yeah, well that's how it's done. Uh, mm, uh, okay. Uh, well, I think I can do this in twelve days, but we've we've you know got to get on with it. We've got to do it now. And they still didn't seem very happy. And I said, well, now what's the problem? And they said, well, the problem is that we couldn't even make your deal in 12 days. And then I made my, my, my I don't know what I did, but I said, look, forget about my deal, forget about the credit, forget about the money. I'm contracted to do the directing. We'll stick with that. But if we don't do this right now, tonight, make this list. There's not going to be a movie. And they, you know, looked at each other like I was a crazy person. And we made this list. Khan, the Genesis Project, Kirk meets his son, uh, the Mutara Nebula, Lieutenant uh, Savick, um, the simulator sequence, which was on page 40 of some draft and Spock wasn't in it. And, and I'd sit with, then I spent the next... 12 days nonstop, you know, fiddling with this Rubik's Cube and just pouring my own dialogue over everything like ketchup. And that was basically the first draft that we went with. It, it was subject, like the U.S. Constitution, to many subsequent amendments. But that was basically it, and that's why I am uncredited. And that got enough to the, into the hands of ILM for them to do the special effects sequences on time. Yes. Right. Is the Which, short answer to that. Yeah, but that, that's an interesting example of what you'd already experienced in other ways, which is this interaction between commerce and art. Well, and how they're always it, intertwined. It's well to remember that Shakespeare's Globe Theater was a money-making operation. It was not subsidized by, you know, the government or something. Hamlet had to sell tickets or they'd close. Right. So you know, you might as well, you know, get used to that whole relationship. I teach that in, uh, I, I have, a, I just wrapped up a course this fall on uh, media management and entrepreneurship. And I, just based on my experiences in, in mostly radio, television, and print, that I was just trying to just always remind them that there is a business decision behind even all of the things which they might think are just pure objects of art. For example, the Mona Lisa, and we broke down all the different business um, in, uh, forces that were involved, all the market forces that were involved in the making of the Mona Lisa, and how we t- kind of take it for granted. And we often do the same thing with the well, modern pieces. Because I was the co-creator with Frank Spotnitz of a current television show called The Medici Masters of Florence. Right. And one of our points was that with the end of feudalism and the beginning of banking and the rise of the middle class, which is now sadly extinct, but with banking, with all that sort of mercantilism, came a lot of uh, interest and promotion of art. Whether you're talking about theater or the Mona Lisa or the Donatello David or the Michelangelo David, the Medici, who were not noble people, um, but they were big promoters, and 
it's interesting that New York, for example, is the only colony of the original 13 colonies that was neither a religious nor a penal colony. It was, even when it was Dutch, it was a trading colony. It was a mercantile colony. And when um, there was, it was the capital of the United States for 15 minutes, um, and then it became Annapolis, uh, it was never the capital of New York State, so it dodged all politics and just stayed a mercantile place, for better or worse. But at its best, you have all these museums, you have all these opera houses, ballet companies, theaters. Uh, that was the byproduct of all this you know, mercantilism, sure. which was, by the way, so advocated by Alexander Hamilton. This is the kind of thing where some folks will um, kind of eschew the com commercialism, uh, and and there are reasons to resent commercial intrusion in things that we watch or listen or whatever. But there's also a recognition that it wouldn't exist without it, and so there's you have to kind of come to some sort of truce um, because there, this is our this system works. It has always worked, and our. It, it, our greatest artifacts, our greatest cultural artifacts, um, have come to us as a result of this. Um, and that it, includes film, which has to be subsidized. Yeah, or to make money. They have to make money, and they have to be financed. And many people come out to Hollywood with fat wallets, uh, looking to, you know, sort of get into the system. And some people are successful, and some people are not. And movies themselves, at the moment, as you are doubtless aware, are undergoing seismic Change. Right. Studios don't make them anymore. They make wind-up toys, um, and so it's independence or places like Netflix or or HBO where the sort of more interesting creative work is being done. But also the work you you were kind of early on in this idea of directing for international markets. Um, you made that movie in India. Was it The Deceivers? Is that what it was about the thuggy? Yeah, with uh, Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, um, yeah, we had we had such a great time making that film. It was a big adventure, and uh, I always liked those movies about uh, the Raj and and it, this is actually pre-Raj India. This is Jane Austen's India, right? Um, and uh, you know the the fun version of it is Gunga Din, and the serious version of it is The Deceivers. And but that same model exists we see in in things like the Meg, the the big shark movie from a couple of years ago, which um, is really I mean it made money in the U.S. but it really is clearly made for an Asian market, and and that's where the financing was coming from, and that's where many of the stars were chosen. The other that thing were, is, that of course, film. is that once you start going for an international market, um, movies which have always been pictures first and foremost become even more important because um, movies that, that rely to too great an extent on words have difficulty translating effectively into a foreign market, whereas if it's, if it's special effects and eye candy and people jumping around, that's an easier translation to uh, sure. non-English markets than it is to do you know, a Tracy Hepburn comedy or sure. The Hangover or something like that. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.